Welcome to the Your Live Well podcast series, where we will be delving into the world of well-being, bringing you expert-led advice, thoughts and opinions from some of the amazing contributors featured at Live Well London 2020, and maybe some other special guests. In this episode, we put the focus on workplace well-being, looking at the problem with perfectionism with Toby Clyde-Smith, who is the programme director for The Positive Group. We live in an increasingly perfectionist world, and whilst there are a number of recognised benefits which can accompany perfectionist tendencies, there is a downside to perfectionism. Unhealthy perfectionism has been scientifically linked to burnout, reduced productivity and poor relationships. It is also a significant risk factor for a range of mental health problems. This talk aims to draw a distinction between the pursuit of excellence and unhealthy perfectionism. We hope you enjoy listening. Hi, hi everyone. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Toby Clyde-Smith. I'm a director at The Positive Group. And I've been wandering around these stalls this afternoon thinking, my God, there are so many things that I need to be doing, things that are, are perhaps going to be good for me in the long run. But why is it that I've got this niggly, niggly feeling in the back of my head that most of them are not going to materialize into actually a new sustainable behavior. And the ancient Greeks have a word for that. It's called acrasia. And acrasia is knowing wisdom to be true, but not doing anything about it. And I think that's a really interesting word. And we're going to explore, explore what that means in a bit, bit more detail over the next 45 minutes. And If any of you have read any books on habit formation by B.J. Fogg, by James Clear, they talk about making things obvious, easy, rewarding, satisfying, all of those things. But I think what ultimately doing something new is, is it's awkward, it's difficult, and it requires effort, and we need to accept that. So if any of you have got a pen, I'd like you to quickly take that pen out and just write your name on a piece of paper, your first name. Just nice and quickly, if you don't, don't worry, you can visualize yourself doing that. So just quickly scribble that name down on that piece of paper. That should feel nice and easy, automatic. You don't really need to think about doing it. Now what I'd like you to do is switch hands, take your non-dominant hand, and write your name again. It's clunky, it's awkward. If I asked you to show that piece of artwork to the person next to you, you'd probably be a bit anxious and embarrassed to do that. And that's what getting new behaviors into the water feels like. It's clunky, it's awkward, it's embarrassing, it's anxiety-inducing. But if you broke your dominant arm and you had to start using your non-dominant hand, how long would it take for that awkwardness to subside? You're forced into a position of having to exert effort to make change. And through that persistence, you start to see results. And so what we think is, yes, there are some great simple steps to make new behaviors more likely that you'll take them up, but really what we've got to do is accept that they're going to be clunky, they're going to be awkward, we are going to fail at them at some point, and how are we going to get them back into the water and stay tenacious, stay on top of it, continue putting effort in. And I think what this comes down to is something not simple, something very complex, and that is our psychological well-being. 
our psychological well-being dictates how much effort we can put in. It dictates how we cope with failure. It dictates our level of embarrassment and anxiety. And where we sit on this continuum here, which shows our psychological well-being, will dictate how much effort we're likely to put in and how likely we are to continue with that new behavior and persist as things get difficult, as things feel clunky, as things feel awkward. Now, most of us will know inherently what it's like to be on one side of this continuum. On the left, when we're living well, where we are flourishing, we're feeling connected, we are feeling inspired, self-motivated. We very much feel at one with who we are. We feel authentic. We feel in control. It's a great place to be. We also know, as Blackadder says, that life conspires to crack down our collar at some times. And when that happens, as healthy humans, we will naturally find our way moving down towards the right into areas where we're feeling a bit detached, a bit isolated, a bit clunky, a bit awkward, not really sure of ourselves, And certainly our idea, our perception of control over things that are going on starts to decline. So those two ends of the spectrum, we all inherently know. We've all felt it. We've all experienced it. We're all going to experience it again and again as we go through our lives. And as healthy individuals, we spend most of our time actually in the middle there, bouncing around between slightly well, slightly unwell. We can change on a minute-by-minute basis, a day-by-day basis. We can change over the course of the week, the month, the year. But the interesting thing about this is the smallest changes in our psychological health have huge impacts. There was a famous study, and it was actually perpetuated in Daniel Kahneman's Fast and Slow Thinking. It was about Israeli judges. And if any of you have read it or know it, you'll understand where I'm about to go. But what they did was they followed a group of Israeli judges around, and they were monitoring whether they accepted or rejected parole applications. And these individuals knew they were being watched. So they were very careful about their behavior. And what they found was quite interesting. 35% of the parole applications that came across their desk, they accepted, they approved. But the interesting fact is when they approved that. 65% of that amount were approved in the hour after lunch. Now, what does this mean? It means that we have a sandwich, we get a bit of glucose in our system, our mood bounces us slightly to the left on this continuum, and we can't help but see a piece of reality in a very different way. And we start to think, these guys deserve a second chance. They should be let out. So the foundation of psychological health, the foundation of psychological well-being is an awareness of where we sit and a reflective practice of what are the things that move me left and right and how does that influence the way I think, the way I feel, and the way I behave. And what we're going to explore today is a couple of the influences that perhaps we're less aware of, and in bringing awareness to them, we can start to shift the dial a tiny bit. Because as John Milton said in Paradise Lost, the mind can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. And where we sit on this continuum does dictate that, But I'm sure you've got your own conception of what psychological well-being is, what it means to you, and the things that it impacts. So what I'd like you to do is quickly take or slide your headset off, speak to the person next to you, and ask yourself, do you think psychological well-being is important for you? If you don't think it's important, the next 40 minutes is going to be quite frustrating and boring. 
if you do think it's important, just ask yourself, what is it impact? Where does its tentacles get out into? What are the things that it, I really notice it impacting on? Okay, just quickly, one minute. Have a quick chat with your neighbor. Okay, headsets back on. So, did anyone think it isn't important? Okay, good, we're all on the same page. Sometimes we get a couple of people putting their hand up and saying, yeah, I don't think it's important for the weather. And actually, it does impact the weather. It impacts our perception of the weather. It impacts how the weather impacts us. So, what were you talking about? What were the things? Just shout out a word, anything that you think it connects to. Confidence, absolutely. Our confidence will, will move up and down as we move along that continuum. Anything else? Creativity, yes, absolutely. Creativity is a fascinating area of research. And creativity links between two attentional, or is linked to two attentional networks that we've got, the default mode, default mode network and the central executive network. And it's the vigilant interplay between those two systems, looking out into the world and looking in at yourself that belies creativity. And recovery is a massive part of that. How many times in the day do I allow myself to look inward and relax and allow my default mode network to switch on? because that's when I consolidate information and I can make free associations. And unfortunately, the modern world tells us we always need to be on and looking outwards and doing. And so we do ourselves a disservice by not allowing ourselves to take idle time. Idleness is not rest. Rest is not idleness. You, your brain is doing things. So what are the ways that you can input that into your, into your life is a really important question. Any other areas that people said it linked to? Relationships, absolutely. Relationships are an absolutely fascinating area. There's a guy, Simon Wesley, who just got knighted for his work on PTSD. And he found that the most protective thing against a veteran experiencing PTSD is social support and cohesion of his unit that continues after his time in the army. Social support is massively important. And a couple of years ago, a Swedish team of researchers did some research onto 300,000 people looking at the impact of our relationships on our health. And they found that weak social connections actually increased uh, your chances of dying by about 50%, akin to starting up a habit of 15 cigarettes a day. 
So our social connections are so important to our health. And the vagus nerve is what they think mediates that. When we have a great interaction with someone, we release oxytocin, the, va the vagus nerve switches on our parasympathetic nervous system, we calm down. And so that's really good for our heart. So the more that we can do that, the more that we can have these good interactions, the better we are at calming down, slowing ourselves down, and allowing our heart to have a bit of a break. So social connections are fascinating, and they are massively influenced by our psychological health. Anything else? Everything. Everything. There we go. Yeah, finally. Good, we can move on. They influence everything. There is not one thing that they don't influence. They influence the rate at which we age. They influence us epigenetically. So we used to think that our genetic structure was fixed. We now have discovered that genes can be switched on and off by the way we think, by the environment we surround ourselves in, by our lifestyle, by our diet. So this means that the choices we make today will influence our longevity, our susceptibility to disease, all these things. So our psychological health is incredibly important. It touches everything, and yet it's not taught in schools, it's not taught in universities. Companies find it very difficult to bake in a human system when they're also, also relying on an economic model and they don't know how to marry these things together. They find it clunky and awkward when they try and do that. We think this should become part of the national curriculum. We think people need to know about how their psychological health can influence everything, but also, importantly, how normal it is to experience every placement on that continuum. And if we can just start to normalize it, we can start to have healthy conversations about it, and we minimize a lot of the harm that is caused by misunderstanding our psychology and our psychological health. So what we do at Positive is we run training programs to try and work out what are the psychological skills that nourish the human spirit? What are the psychological skills that individuals, teams, organizations need to know that are, give them an awareness of where they sit on this continuum and also give them some strategies that they can use to pull themselves left and right? Because psychological health isn't about a constant state of utopian bliss on the left. Psychological health is going up and down. But what someone who is psychologically well does is they are aware of when they're on the right and then they can put strategies in place to move themselves away from that if they're languishing there. That's where the danger starts. It's when we get stuck on the right. And the right, as many of you may know, is a very sticky place. The way we think has changed, our emotions have changed, the way we connect is impacted. And so that's why social support is so important. You need someone to take your hand, notice when you're there and pull yourself out of it. But there's also a lot you can be doing now proactively as healthy individuals to start influencing your awareness of where you are and also what you can do to shift yourself left and right when you need to do that. We can exert control. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And... Really, this comes down to, and this is the reason I think it's so difficult for organizations and individuals to know what to do in this space. It's because the mind is mind-bogglingly complex. You've got 100 billion neurons. Billions more are being created. Each neuron has the capacity to make 10,000 to 30,000 connections. So you have a vast, intricate neck um, net of neuronal networkery in your heads that's individual to yourselves. 
that makes our psychology and our psychological health extremely complex. And we are what we want as simple hominids is to find an answer. We want linear causality. We want to know if I do this, this will happen. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen in the world of our psychological health. There is a complex system of interacting causes and consequences that will produce our psychological health. And so it's really, really complex, and that can put people off. But what we are finding out in the sciences is that actually, whilst we don't have 20-20 vision, what we are starting to work out is there are some risk factors and some protective factors. And if we can start to generate more awareness and education about what they are, people then can exert a bit of control in minimizing those risk factors and really holding on to some of those protective factors. And that's the way we can drive change, just educating people as to what are the things that might influence them. And I must say that there is no silver bullet, there's no panacea, nothing that I say in the way I say it this afternoon will necessarily work for you. You are completely unique. Identical twins are unique from each other. They have different fingerprints because there's different pressures in, in amniotic fluid when they're in the uterus. They, if they have different fingerprints, then think about the complexity in their brains that might be different. So if identical twins are unique, you are all mind-bogglingly unique. So what works for you will be different from the next person. But what we can do is start a bit of a trial, see what works, see what doesn't work, and start to eventually sharpen our knife so we know this is the formula for me that makes a difference. But it's about going out and testing it. And that's what we want to encourage people to do today. And neuroplasticity is probably the foundation of this, and I'm sure you would have all heard about it. We used to think our brains are very static and very fixed in their structure, but we now know that they evolve and change their shape dependent on the environment we surround ourselves with, the things that we think, and the way that we behave. You can see this in animals, canaries. Every spring, they design a new mating call to attract mates, and the size of their brain doubles. And then once they've mated and they don't need the call anymore, their brain shrinks back to its original size. This is neuroplasticity, and we see this in us humans. When we pick up a guitar for the first time, two isolated neurons will fire together and wire together. That connection will be weak to begin with. The more we strum that guitar deliberately, effortfully, and over a long period of time, the stronger that connection between neurons becomes, and that makes the behavior easier. The more we do something, the better we get at it. And this is an unbelievable thing to know. It gives you hope. It gives you hope that anything that you do, any thought pattern that you have, can influence the shape and size of the neuronal networkery in your head. And that is fantastic. And, and the main bit of research that you'll all hear about that is the one done on London taxi drivers, where they had to learn London street map and their hippo, hippocampal volume significantly increased over the time they learned that. Then if they failed the test and they didn't need the knowledge anymore, the hippocampus, which is the sort of seat of their spatial navigation, went back to its original size. So our brain will constantly shift and adapt to the world around it. But here's the rub. It doesn't only support healthy and positive behaviors. It is also the seat of anything that's bad for us and unhealthy for us. 
So we do a bit of work with Professor Tom Sensky, who works up at King's, and one of his significant areas of research is chronic embitterment syndrome. And this is where you experience one day a perceived injustice. Someone cuts in front of you in the traffic. And you think, that bastard, I can't believe he cut me up. And then you start thinking about it. It forms an associative network in your brain, and it shifts your mood. You move over to the right of, the, of that continuum, and you start to have automatic cognitions in line with it. You start to think about it all afternoon. And when you get to the office, someone doesn't say hello to you. When you come in, you think, everyone's out to get me today. I can't believe this. And you start ruminating on it at night. It goes round and round in your head. The more you think about it, the stronger those connections become. Until a week later, a week after ruminating on it, visualizing it, a week after everything in the world reminding you of that injustice, the first thing you think when your eyes flutter open in the morning is that bastard, and off you go again. This is how neuroplasticity can work against us. If we give attention to a certain pattern of thoughts that are self-critical, that are recriminatory, we strengthen the neural circuit that supports them, and those thoughts become easier. They come to mind more quickly. And so what we want to know are what are the thought patterns that are unhealthy? What are the thought patterns that actually can pull us onto the right of that continuum, make or, and weaken our psychological health? And that's what we're going to touch upon today. But firstly, we need to really simplify the brain. I apologize to any neuroscientists in the room, but the brain is a very, very interesting object. And when you start to look at the brain and try and start to figure out how the way it operates influences what we think, you come across this interesting model. We have, in, on the one hand, we've got a primordial system. Our brain stem, our limbic system, and our midbrain here. These are ancient pre-lingual structures, and they are responsible for all the automatic, fast thinking in our brain. Freud called this the id. Spinoza said this was a big, blind giant in our subconscious. And Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Fast and Slow Thinking, calls this system, System One. What it's designed to do, its primary job is keep you in the gene pool. How it does that is it needs to make really quick sense of the world around us and provide us with a speedy assessment to keep us alive. With speed, perhaps it lacks accuracy. So this system is sitting there, and it's always on in the background, trying to work out, are you in danger? Do we need to notice anything? Do we need to record anything? Do we need to shift our behavior? Should we be thinking something different to keep us alive? So it takes in about 400 billion bits of data every second. And that is an extraordinary amount. And how it works out, what that data means, is it's got a huge database of all your past experiences. It's got all your beliefs, your attitudes, your stereotypes, your biases. And it looks at that information, and it looks at what it already knows, and it goes, okay, this is the way we should think, feel, and behave in this instance to keep us alive. So it's, it's myopic. It's thinking about here and now. It's not thinking about your future. And then we've got this other system. And this is you. This is your conscious brain. This is your inner voice. This is known as system two. It primarily sits in our cortex, 
more sort of at the more focused point is our prefrontal cortex right here. And this system has very limited RAM. In fact, it can only hold roughly about four bits of data at any one time. It doesn't have much energy. It requires a hell of a lot of effort to get it to do what it wants to do. And it's easily hijacked by things like stress and things like threat. So these two systems are working together. You've got your conscious mind and you've got your unconscious mind. And you might be thinking, well, who's got more power? So most of the research says that in terms of processing power or in terms of the impact on the way we think, feel and behave, system one, our unconscious mind, that inner chimp, makes about 95% of the decisions. System two, 5%. Daniel Kahneman, in his book, he talks about if system two, your conscious brain, was the size of a cubic foot, then system one would be the size of the Milky Way. This is a vast disparity. Now, these two systems will cohere, and in fact, system one will provide you with great answers to most things all the time. It's got all of your deepest, darkest memories and factoids hidden away in it. So if I asked you, what is two plus two? System one gives you the answer. It should immediately pop into your conscious mind. If I ask you what's the capital of France, I hope, again, it pops into your conscious mind. If I ask you how many animals of each type did Moses take with him on the ark, then most of us tend to think two. But then we realize the actual answer is zero. I said Moses, and it's Noah. So how does this work? Well, system one makes ballpark guesses. Moses and Noah are both biblical figures, and so it doesn't notice a difference between the two. So it doesn't say there's been an error there. Whereas if I said, how many did Donald Trump take on the art? Immediately, you would be, hey, that's not right. And so it is prone to error making. It is so quick, and it's trying to get a quick answer to you that it can give you the wrong answer. And there are mountains of evidence that support how this can get in our way. One particular comes from the corporate world. It's called set up to fail syndrome. And what set up to fail syndrome is, is where a manager, when someone new joins their team, will make a decision on whether they like the person or whether they don't like the person within the first six to eight hours. They'll put them into an in-group or an out-group. And then how does that actually impact this individual? What happens is, once they've decided whether they're, if they're in the out-group, they will not give them much work. If they make a mistake, they'll go down on a ton, like a ton of bricks on them. They won't invite them to any social occasions, whereas the person they put in the in-group, they invite to work. They they really sit with when they've made a mistake to make sure that they don't make the mistake in the future. And this basically di dictates the success of that individual in the organization in the long run. And it's all made by a system one decision. Did I like the way that person looked, the set of their jaw? Did I like the way the person smelled? Did I like the way they interacted with me to begin with? And so system one is this great big filter through which all incoming data passes before it gets to your conscious mind. And most of us never check the assumptions that are coming in. Most of us just go along with them because system two gets past the answer from system one 
It's unaware that it got the answer from system one, and it's unaware of its unawareness. So we never think to check, where am I getting this from? Is this the right way to think in this scenario? Is this the right way to feel? Where did this come from? What triggered it? And when we actually start to look at how system one and system, or how the information in system one actually comes to be there, we start to understand it. But why is this important? Why is it important that we start to check what system one is telling us, this, this inner chimp? And what system one will do is when it notices something is new, something is dangerous, something is threatening in its environment, it will kick on the stress response. The stress response is completely normal, completely adaptive. We all need it. If we have no stress, that's akin to me playing tennis against Roger Federer. Roger Federer gets very bored quickly. He doesn't enjoy it. We need stress in our life to actually perform. So as stress increases, performance increases. We start to upregulate things like cortisol, adrenaline, acetylcholine. It makes us focused, energetic, and switched on. Our system one and our system two are cohering perfectly. And we can often reach something called flow, which is optimal functioning. But it's a transient state. Something that happens when we experience challenge, pressure, a bit of stress for longer than usual is we get moved down into areas of distress on the right of this graph over here. And we are designed to go there. If we go there for a day, a month, a week, two months, it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely healthy. But unfortunately, there are some subtle changes that happen when we do become slightly distressed that make it more difficult to move out of that state. The first is to our patterns of thinking. So those hormones, those neurochemicals that I talked about that were once beneficial, when they get to a certain level, they start to disrupt our brain functioning. And in fact, when you move down onto the right, you can almost induce a pseudo-dementia when about 60% of our cognitive function in our system two is impaired. So we find it really difficult to think about this logically, objectively, neutrally, and pull ourselves away. We also, as we start to move down there, we start to have mood congruent cognition. So we're stressed and we start to think about being stressed. And as humans, we've got this wonderful ability to metacognize. We can think about thinking, which is great when we're trying to learn, but when we're becoming stressed, we start to be, become stressed about being stressed. And what that does is that heightens the condition and we pull ourselves further down. When we get angry about being angry, frustrated about being frustrated, it makes things worse. There's something called functional equivalence. When you think of something, 80 to 90% of the neurons that are actually doing that thing will activate. And when they activate, the corresponding hormonal changes will occur, chemical changes, physiological changes, emotional changes. What we think really does matter. And so if we are starting to be critical about ourselves for being stressed, we make it worse. And as thinking becomes more difficult, we slip into a binary thought pattern. We only see things very in binary terms, of, in terms of this is success or failure. And so you start moving down there, and you also have some physiological reactions. You, your metabolism starts to be impacted. 
your immune system starts to be impacted. And before you know it, you've been pulled right the way down. And system two has been completely hijacked. And system run is running the show, looking for threat. And you are at the whims of your animal instinct at that point. So what we need to do is understand what are the things in system one that are kicking this stress response on? But secondly, what are the things that are keeping the stress response on? Particularly when we're in distress, when we're feeling pressured, what are the things that our system one might be kicking up that keep us there? And this is what we want to talk about this afternoon. And this is about perfectionism. But before we talk about perfectionism, we need to understand where it comes from. And you would have come across the word schema before. This is something that was coined by Jean Piaget, who's a dev developmental psychologist. And what he found is when we are young, our brain is extremely plastic. And our system one's trying to make sense of the world. And how it does that is it looks out for things that are emotional, either positive or negative. And when we have an emotional experience, that early experience, it will encode it deeply into our system one. Because emotion, when it's attached to an experience, means that experience is meaningful to us. And if it's meaningful, we need to remember it. If something good happens, we need to make sure that we do more of that. Because that drives us forward to the things that we're going after and the things that are important to us. If, on the other hand, that experience is negative, that we need to know about that. We need to know that's a threat. Prevent that in the future. Anticipate that in the future. Predict it. Make sure we go no way near it. So if we look at identical twins again, and we consider this, and we imagine them going to school for their first day of school, and they have their lessons in the morning together, everything's going well, and then break comes around. And the teacher says, right, you can go outside into the playground or you can stay in here where we're going to do a bit more extra work. One of the twins says, I would like to stay inside and do extra work with you, teacher. The other twin says, I'm going to go out into the playground. But what then happens? So the twin who's stayed in the classroom and done extra work with the teacher gets some positive reinforcement from the teacher. Well done for staying in. This is great that we've done extra work. And the twin forms a positive associative network deep in its system one that associates school with people being proud of them, people accepting them. And that's a very powerful network. So the next day, that twin is desperate to go to school, looking forward to doing extra work. And the more the twin thinks about that and the more the twin does that, the stronger that system becomes. And it eventually becomes a core belief. I'm good at school. People value me when I try hard at school. And then what do they do as a result? They've got a compensatory strategy. They go to school as much as they can. They put as much effort as they can in. And school is a really positive experience. But if we go back to the beginning and we look at the other twin who's gone out into the playground, she goes out into the playground and is confronted by a bully. A bully trips her up and laughs and walks away. That twin, alternatively, forms a very powerful associative network that associates school with people laughing at them, humiliation, anger, frustration, and negative schema far more powerful. It's more important that we are aware of the bad stuff than the good stuff, because that keeps us alive. So that associative network forms very, very deeply. And so the twin goes home, and that associative network has pulled them into a space where all they're doing is thinking about that experience 
and that feeling of being rejected, and they're strengthening the network. And so the next day, they ask their mom, can I not go to school? And they're dragged, kicking and screaming, and they go. They sit in the corner. People laugh at them because they're weird, and they are isolated. And this reinforces the network. And over time, this accumulates to a core belief that they have about themselves, and which influences the way they see the world as school isn't for me. School is where bad things happen. People don't like me when I go to school. It is not something that I want to do. And that will completely change their worldview. This is the same place, an identical set of twins. They just have one experience, and it completely changes the trajectory of their lives. And we will all have this going on. It would have happened throughout our whole childhood. We will have a number of schema built up, which change the way we view ourselves, the world, and the future. They impact our health and our performance, and they sit in system one. So all information runs through that before it comes to your conscious awareness. So these are really, really important things to be aware of. And the one I want to talk to you about today is perfectionism. Now, perfectionism is commonly talked about as a, as a source of pride in the world today. It's, it's about the relentless pursuit of success, going after very, very high standards, and people are really rewarded for that. But perfectionism actually is associated with significant cost at the same time. And what I want to do is take you through how perfectionism is formed and then finally look at an antidote. If we are perfectionistic and we are recognizing some of these things, how can we challenge this? How can we actually overcome it? So, Perfectionism can be split roughly into two different categories, healthy and unhealthy perfectionism. Healthy perfectionism is when you go after high standards and that's it. You try and achieve them. If you fail, it's okay. You'll learn. You'll keep going. Unhealthy perfectionism, on the other hand, is when you go after the same high standards and you attach your ego to the outcome. You attach your self-worth to whether you succeed or not in that endeavor. And that is why it is very, very dangerous. Unhealthy perfectionism is a significant and robust predictor of psychological ill health. And it can manifest in three ways. There's self-oriented perfectionism, and that's when we set these high standards for ourselves and we drive that. There's socially prescribed perfectionism, and that's when the world around us, our parents, peers, and friends, put pressure on us to achieve those high standards. And then finally, there's other-oriented. This is when we expect high standards of the people around us. Now, each three of those categories is significantly associated with ill health. And they all have risen by about 30% in the last 20 years. And I'm not going to get into why that might be. I'm sure you can imagine some of the reasons. But the most significantly dangerous one is socially prescribed perfectionism. And that has seen the biggest increases. And socially prescribed perfectionism is associated with OCD. It's predictive of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, workaholism, marital split-ups, and even suicide. It is a robust predictor of those things, and yet it's not in any DSM, it's not defined as anything, and we all actually see it as actually a bit of a sense of, of pride. So why is it that perfectionism is bad? Well, when we think about it, We've got to assess where it comes from, and that goes back to a schema. That goes back to our early experience. And a classic early experience we might have is coming first or coming top 
in a spelling bee when we are eight years old. We come top and our mum, our dad and our teacher praise us. So we make an associative network connecting coming first, coming top with getting praised, people accepting us, people being proud of us. We start to think about that. We strengthen the network. A month later, there's another test and we get a B. No one praises us. That reinforces the same network. People are not proud of me unless I come top. And so what we're doing here is over time, we're slowly inculcating a core belief about the world and ourselves in the world that only if I succeed, will I be loved. Only if I succeed, will I be accepted. And this is why perfectionism can be so poisonous and so dangerous. Because we know that it's almost impossible. If we are relentlessly pursuing high standards and perfection, the main thing that our brain is going to be looking out for is error and mistake. We need to know if we're doing anything wrong because that's what we're trying to avoid. And that's what means people aren't proud of us. So our brain orients itself orients itself to negativity. We start to notice the things we do wrong. And in doing that, it ignores the things we do well. A perfectionist ignores what they do well. They don't savor successes. They don't celebrate what they've done well at all. And that has a profound influence on our mood to begin with. And that will have a profound influence on where we are on that graph of stress. It will pull us to the right further if we're constantly noticing error and not allowing ourselves to sit and save a success. So that has a significant impact on our health. And we start to see the world in terms of success or failure. That means that we don't go after things. We don't challenge ourselves just because there's a heightened risk that we will fail. And if we fail, people don't accept us. So perfectionism is, at its root, a schema that says we don't feel accepted unless we are perfect. And that means that we are constantly going to be taking a battering for our self-esteem. And perfectionists, when they do achieve something, they quickly move away from it and they set a higher standard. And it continues to barrel on like that. And the last consequence is, when we move to the right of that stress graph, and when we are perfectionistic, and we're tense and on edge, and we're going after these things all the time, and we have these relentless high standards, what does that mean for our social life? We stop interacting with others. We don't share our ideas. In brainstorming sessions at work, we are marveling at how loosely people are banding about ideas. We don't want to share ours in case someone else uses it or in case it's not perceived as perfect. So we wait, we wait, we wait, and we never get our ideas out. And also, we start to get totally self-focused. So if someone else succeeds, we see that as a threat. And that's the lovely Gore Vidal line. Every time a friend of mine succeeds, a little bit of me dies inside. And that's a very perfectionistic thing to say. We start to hate people, other people's success. And we start to pull ourselves away from other people so they don't impact us. We don't delegate very easily. We don't share very easily. We procrastinate a huge amount. We live by lists moving our day into 15-minute um, increments, which reduce the chance to deepen relationships and be creative. We hate waste. A full fridge is something we don't like to see. And we sit in relationships far longer than we need to because of the sunk cost. We've put time in. We can't be bothered to let that time go to waste. So perfectionism 
is very, very dangerous. It is problematic. It's on the rise. We don't need to go into that now. So how do we actually start to impact it? And you've got three or four portals here that you can use. And this is available to everyone. So on the left here, you've got your filter. This is where perfectionism sits. This is where your assumptions sit. Data passes through it. And that will change our cognitions, our emotions, our physiology, and our behavior. So that means that if you start to change your cognition, your emotion, your physiology or behavior, you'll start to send feedback the other way and start to influence the underlying assumption. And so I want to talk about one of these for the last two minutes. And this is the question of what's in your filter. And it might not be perfectionism. It might be another self-limiting belief. But how do we actually address that? And the first way that we do that, and this comes from CBT, is to start to monitor the inner story we're telling ourselves. We have 60,000 thoughts a day. Most of those are kicked up automatically via system one. We never check in with that. We never check those assumptions. So start to become aware of the story that you're telling yourself on a daily basis. When you become aware of negative automatic thoughts where you're being self-critical, you're setting yourself rigid standards, you're dislocating yourself from other people, Start to notice that, and we can then put something in place. And that will be next. But firstly, the important thing about self-talk is constantly ask yourself one question. Would I be saying the same thing to a friend facing the same situation? And that is a great barometer. If it isn't what you'd say to a friend, and you're saying it to yourself, then you need to shift it. Because what we think matters If you have negative cycles of self-talk, rumination, and worry, that is depressiogenic. It activates that circuit. It strengthens that circuit. It reinforces the schema. It changes the way you see the world, changes the way you interact. So we need to notice when we're doing that. And then we can put something in place. And the last thing is, and this comes from CBT, and there's a lot of evidence backing this technique up, is inner coach. When we visualize someone we respect, someone we admire, our visual cortex lights up and our limbic system dampens down. Our limbic system is informed predominantly by the things we see, not by the things we say. So if we can visualize someone we respect, someone who's compassionate, someone who's wise, and we bring them vividly to mind when we're noticing those negative cycles of self-talk, we automatically dampen down system one and we can ask them, What would you say to us in this scenario? And you start to inject a counsel for the defense into this kangaroo court, and you're able to reappraise your negative self-talk. And the more you do that consistently on a daily basis, and trust me, it will be bloody awkward and clunky, just like using your wrong hand to, to write down your name, it will become easier and easier. And when we ask perfectionists to do this, they hate it. They hate being compassionate to themselves. It feels totally wrong. But the more they persist, the more they break down those neural circuits that support the perfectionistic behavior, and they replace it with a compassionate, wise set of neural circuitry that allows them to cope in the face of adversity and change much more favorably. So to conclude, I just want to say that there is a long process from starting a new behavior to actually maintaining it. And that process includes relapse. You're all relapse. And perfectionists out there, you don't take relapse very well. So know that 
That's going to happen. And what are you going to do when that occurs? Because when that occurs, you'll start off another cycle of negative self-talk. How are you going to get yourself and how are you going to respond when that occurs? And if you do that, and if you're tenacious and persistent, over time, you will have tackled the problem of perfectionism or whatever other self-limiting belief you think is necessary that you want to attack. So that's all I've got to say today. Thank you very much. And if you want to ask any questions around this, please do not come and not hesitate to come and, and have a chat. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this Live Well podcast. You can join us for more episodes over the coming weeks and find out more about future Live Well events at livewelllondon.com. If you'd like to hear more from the Positive Group, then join them for a free webinar, Leading Out of Lockdown, How Can We Set Up for Future Success, which takes place on Wednesday, June 17th, 2020 from 11.30am, where they will be exploring how, as lockdowns start to lift, leaders have a unique opportunity to drive post-traumatic growth. You can find further details in this episode's description. We'll see you next episode for more exciting wellbeing wisdom. <laughs>